when the bartender once met a dragon ninja. When you spell fairy three different ways. When Al-Kadim isn't Al-Kadim. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Lennon. And I'm Ostron. And this is the 158th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, March 20th, and released Wednesday, March 24th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ostron, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventures Pack, OMG, Lennon's found some generators. Next, we check out some D&D news as we uncover the latest Unearthed Arcana, Folk of the Feywild. After that, we take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to check out some actual Forgotten Realms with a look at Al-Kadim, before finally heading over to the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurers' packs. You always carry this machine bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need this stupid rule for! So, we've been doing this show for a little while, and D&D 5th Edition has actually been around longer than we've been doing the show. And over the years, we've covered many different generators to give you things like NPCs and uh, cities and landmarks and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And unfortunately, just because of the length of time that a lot of these are involved and the fact that they're community projects, some of them end up shutting down, being forgotten, going by the wayside, etc. So... One of my favourite ones that I used to use has recently suffered a similar fate so that started me looking for other ones to give me a bit of inspiration so when I'm building my worlds and I'm looking to fill it out with various different bits and pieces or conversely if one of my players at the table surprises me by going in a direction that I never foresaw at least I can be prepared. So the website that I found, which is full of generators, is called Oh My Game Master, and you can find it at omgm.rocks. This generator set is a very nice very lightweight design and it's been built so that it functions really well not just on a desktop but also on tablet and mobile as well so if you're not playing over the internet if you're playing around a table and you have an ipad or something like that you can always call it up on this and it will function exactly the same so these generators there are six different generators that you get on this website covering cities inns landmarks npcs shops and traps and what I like about it is that when you click to generate, so let's take a look at towns for example, you click to generate a town and it gives you, uh, to begin with at the top, a box that has the settings. So you can tweak and if you want specifically a town that exists in a polar region, you just change the temperature setting. Or if you want instead of a town, you want a uh, large city, you just change that from the type. You've also got things for altitude, the size, the humidity, etc. Anyway, once you have set your settings, you can then hit generate and it will generate a town based on the settings that you pick. And it gives you all the basic information. You know, you've got the town, um, what the population is, the predominant races, gives you government types, everything like that, as you would expect for these types of generators. It also gives you a small series of historical events, as well as a couple of hooks on there so that you can use that in building your world and it just means that you've got a little bit of extra information in case your players decide to go in a direction that you didn't intend it then also under cities lists all the different buildings that you've got and that sort of system then extends out to the npcs the landmarks the shops and the traps so you can customize them and you can call up and you can generate and it gives you just a nice succinct bit of information so let's take for example the uh, landmarks i've just generated one uh, random called many statues which is found in a fern wetland uh, its inhabitants are a swarm of ravens with a cool temperature the wind is calm there's a little bit of ground fog and the entire area is a powerful illusion that actually changes every day little by little and it's given me two secrets about this area as well the first is that a storm devastated the area for 25 days that was evoked by a powerful entity and the second one is an abandoned tower that says the entrance of an ancient net of caves so from this one location you've instantly got some others that you can go out from 
every time you generate a city and in a landmark etc you also have the option of downloading that as a pdf so that if you need to keep it for later because i have a horrible habit of generating npcs and then forgetting exactly which npcs i've generated and not making a note of them you've got the option to just be able to grab that and save it speaking of the npcs when you generate those, you get everything like their height, their race, their occupation, personality, uh, gives you some information about their birth and some physical traits and lots of lots of things like that. One thing that I did find particularly fun uh, with this one that I haven't actually seen in some other generators is when you go to the shops section and you generate a shop, so I've got a bookshop here, it gives you the information about the owner, so in this instance it's a human woman who's 4 foot 10, uh, it gives you the alignment, but it also includes a little section called greetings where it gives you some one-liners that your shopkeeper can say, so every time they walk in, you know, these particular greetings are, hi there, or long time no see, which might sound like quite standard greetings, but if I refresh it, I now get a completely different NPC, but this time the greetings are, hey, how's things? And if I regenerate again, I've got another one that says, hey, what's the good word? And you there, how are you doing? So it just gives a little bit of additional texture and flavor and quality to your NPCs that own these establishments. From there you can actually extend it out and they've got like a little hidden menu that you can toggle additional things so if you need to suddenly get the life events of that person, if you've got the bartender and your players strike up a conversation you really need to know, you know, for example in this one they met someone who gave them a really valuable trinket so it just gives a little bit more background to make your NPCs more realized. Now that's all the pros of this website. Now, obviously, it wouldn't be complete if we didn't give you a few cons as well. One thing that I have found about this generator compared to others is that sometimes if you generate enough, you can spot the repetition a bit quicker than I have done with other generators. Uh, so I think, you know, the back end does need possibly a little bit more seeding. But having said that, everything that they do generate is very nice. It is very fit for purpose you can just hit generate a few times grab something from there and drop it in exactly and uh, other than that if you are a web developer of sorts um, you will notice that this site isn't using https which these days just is almost inexcusable it takes 10 seconds to put an ssl certificate on there having said that you're just running generators there doesn't appear to be any type of advertising or, or cookies or facebook links or anything that could possibly track you in there so there could be a reason why that wasn't done as well but yeah so that generator is at omgm.rocks and i threw this to my co-hosts to have a play around with so ostron ryu what do you think i like it it's a lot more neatly and aesthetically laid out than a lot of generator sites the some of the others that we've covered even even some of the ones that we really recommend suffer from the unvarnished wall of text issue mm -hmm. and this one all of the descriptions have nice fonts there's framing there's borders there are even small pictures in a lot of cases although they tend to be the same picture for everything and i like the settings that they chose for most of the generators they make sense they have most of the stuff that you would want to modify for a generator like this or generators like these and i was thinking you know the list of settings you can play with are relatively small whereas other generators let you tweak more things but then i was thinking about it and i was going if you have many more settings to tweak, you may as well just make the whatever it is yourself because you're right. spending all the time selecting all the minutiae. Just do it yourself at that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, those are, those are some things I liked about it. One of the most obvious places where I feel like it falls down, though, is you mentioned that whenever you have an NPC, either in the explicit NPC generator or as a, you know, shop proprietor or whatever, where a character shows up, you have the extra information, most of which is good. But in life events, the sort of Mad Libs feature of the site really gets obvious. Yeah. Um, most of the life events are not complete sentences some of them aren't even 
like complete thoughts and a lot of them suffer from grammatical issues making it very obvious that this was the sentence this is where the word gets slotted in and maybe some extra curation would have gone a good way to improve that particular section of the generators yeah 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 and that one is also one where i did spot a lot of the repetition happening was in that and maybe you're right is that i was spotting the patterns in the madlib style dialogue so something that i noticed about this website that i i like is that if you click on any of the generator options from the home page it color codes the top nav of whatever you just generated to match what you generated. So like all the NPCs are in green, the uh, traps are in blue, stuff like that. I thought that was interesting. I also really like on the NPC page how they give you a list of what the NPC is wearing. And that's something that I just don't think about. Hmm in my games and I actually have had people ask me what a, an NPC looks like and I'm like Ugh, making it up on the fly hold on and it's nice to just have it written out for you something that I did find interesting though on the towns it actually gives you a number of each type of building that is in the town mm -hmm. and I like this and I also don't like it at the same time because this one that I just generated has 83 cottages and 62 farmhouses. And I'm like, there's there's no way that, I mean, my players are usually explorers and they want to go to every single building in a town to see if anybody has anything for them to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, we're not doing this 83 times. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of took that to be more like giving you a good idea of what the town would look like on a sort of visual level. And bear in mind that even though it says farmhouse, that doesn't necessarily mean there's 83 farms per se. It's just yeah. like the larger dwelling, you know, because if you look on there, they don't list things like for example warehouses and i'm sure that there would be several of those so i just took it to be like the size or the function so a cottage would be more something that was independently established maybe with a small garden a farmhouse is a more of a functional building whereas a house is probably just you know everything that makes up the rank and file just off the main high street sort of thing yeah but that being said, I love generators, mm. so thank you for giving this to me. Yeah, no worries. I did manage to generate a town earlier, and I wish I'd saved the PDF. It was a village. The village name was Orc, as in the, the monster, and it had 32 graveyards. So I feel <laughs> that for a village with 32 graveyards called Orc, that place was more of a warning than an invitation. <laughs> And links to OMGM can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Have you found a cool app, book, or other item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at HeroesRiseDnD, or by emailing sendingstone at HeroesRisePodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. This week in D&D News, another Unearthed Arcana has been released, this time covering the Folk of the Feywild. This Unearthed Arcana comes complete with Jeremy Crawford's name in the byline, indicating that this one is a little more official than most, and likely to be something we'll see in a future printing. So if you like what you see here, or conversely if you hate it, be sure to fill in the survey available on the Wizards website and make your voice known. As with all Unearthed Arcana, we have to make the following disclaimer. The material in this Unearthed Arcana is presented for playtesting and to spark your imagination. These game mechanics are in draft form, usable in your campaign, but not refined by full game design and editing. They aren't officially part of the game, aren't permitted in D&D Adventures League events, and be sure to check with your DM before using these options at your tables. In this Unearthed Arcana, there are four new race options for playtesting. The Fairy, Hobgoblins of the Feywild, Owl Folk, and Rabbit Folk. As with the Gothic Lineage's UA, this one also uses Tasha's rules for character creation, so you can freeform increase one ability score by two and another ability score by one, or you can assign one ability score increase to three different stats of your choosing. You also get to speak, read, and write common, and one additional language that is appropriate for your character. 
So kicking things off with the fairy race, who are small, but not quite as tiny as a pixie or a sprite, you begin by rolling a d8, or you could choose one yourself, I guess, but where's the fun in that? Anyway, you roll a d8 on a fake characteristics table with options such as you have shimmering multicolored skin, or you have a small spectral horn on your forehead, like a little unicorn horn. And you are small with a speed of 30 feet, with a flying speed equal to your walking speed. As a part of your fairy heritage, you also know the druid craft and fairy fire spells. You can cast fairy fire without expending a spell slot, and you must finish a long rest before you can cast it again in this way, or you can expend any suitable spell slot you have. Finally, you also get the Fey Passage trait, which lets you squeeze through a space as narrow as one inch wide. Hobgoblins of the Feywild first appeared alongside their goblin and bugbear kin, and even though they've left the Feywild for the material plane, they continue the Feywild spirit of reciprocity, which creates a mystical bond between the giver and the receiver of a gift. Hobgoblins are a humanoid creature type and are size medium. They have a walking speed of 30 feet. They also have dark vision out to 60 feet, and thanks to their Fey ancestry, they have advantage on saving throws against a charmed condition. In the spirit of the reciprocity, you also have a Fey gift trait that lets you take the help action as a bonus action. From third level, you can also choose one of the following options, whether you take the help action as a regular action or as a bonus action, and these are as follows. Hospitality, where you and the target gain temporary hit points equal to 1d6 plus your proficiency bonus. Passage, where you and the target gain an extra 10 feet of walking speed until the start of your next turn. And Spite, where the first time you or the target hits a creature with an attack roll, that creature has disadvantage on the next attack roll it makes within the next one minute. You can use your Fey Gift a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. And finally, if you miss an attack roll or saving throw, you can draw on your Bonds of Reciprocity to add a bonus to the roll equal to the number of allies that you can see within 30 feet of you, up to a maximum of a plus 5, thanks to your Fortune from the Many trait. And you can use this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. For those of you that couldn't give a hoot about fairies and hobgoblins, you have the Owl Folk, distant kin of giant owls. Like Aarakocra, Owl Folk have arms and legs, as well as wings, and are graced with feathers that make little to no sound when they move or fly. As an Owl Folk, you're a humanoid creature type of size medium or small, with a speed of 30 feet and dark vision out to 90 feet. Your magic sight trait lets you cast detect magic, but only as a ritual using intelligence, wisdom, or charisma to make the check. Thanks to your wings, you also have nimble flight, which as well as giving you a flying speed equal to your walking speed, also lets you use your reaction to make a dexterity saving throw with a DC 10 to stop falling and safely fly in place until the start of your next turn. Finally, your silent feathers grant you proficiency in the stealth skill. Finally, the rabbit folk started out in the Feywild, but they have since spread everywhere, like, well, rabbits. Like the owl folk, the rabbit folk are bipedal humanoids of medium or small, with a speed of 30 feet. Thanks to their bunny heritage, they get to add their proficiency bonus to initiative rolls, and their leperine senses give them proficiency in the perception skill. As we all know, rabbits have lucky feet, and thanks to their lucky footwork when they fail a dexterity saving throw, they can use their reaction to add 1d4 to the result. Finally, once during each of their turns, when walking at least 5 feet, they can do a rabbit hop, which lets them roll a d12 and move that many feet in a direction of the rabbit folk's choice. I'm sure this is going to not be a surprise to anybody, but I love this UA. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> also, it, it struck me as being very similar to Humblewood, and mm, I'm wondering yes. if I'm wondering if this is, at least in part an answer to how popular that setting is starting to become. There is a possibility of that. I also think that this still points towards a lot of Manual of the Plains type stuff. Uh, I mean, we got a whole thing about the fact I can't see that they do a whole Feywild supplement. Although having said that, they are doing a whole Domains of Dread supplement, so honestly, who knows? But I think yeah, this I was, is probably... I was going to say, this, this would... I mean, we'd need to see more UAs, but I wouldn't rule out a Feywild exclusive resource coming out. Yeah, I mean, honestly, at this point with Wizards of the Coast, I could see them doing something along the lines of making a book that is something like a Feywild-type book, but stuffing it so full of like other planar things that it kind of becomes an unofficial manual of the planes rather than a specific one. Because, yeah, other than that, I was trying to think about the recent UAs that we've had, and we've had the one with the Gothic lineages, which is obviously coming out in 
uh, Ricky's Guide to Spooky Town. We've then had the dragon-themed UA, and now we've got the Feywild-themed, and I can see that the dragon and the Feywild one might go together quite well. So, yeah, who knows? So, out of these individual races, which one appeals to you the most, and which one do you think is the most broken? Because of these races that are here, Owl Folk is something that I think are kind of new. I've not heard of them being in the Feywild in other supplements. Rabbit Folk, you can kind of find a few references to here and there. The one thing that I think is probably the most uh, uh, broken in is the, the Hobgoblins of the Feywild. I think that their Fey Gift, uh, where you can do a, a maximum of a plus five roll to any attack roll or saving throw that you miss, is going to hugely weight things, particularly if they're in a class that likes to play with the fates like a bard, a Hobgoblin bard would probably never miss a saving throw, given all the things that they can do there. A, um, a Hobgoblin bard would never not be able to do anything right yeah yeah yeah. um like and and the other thing help as a bonus action is something one of the bards gets anyway i forget which one so they're they're getting that from that class fey gift is basically the lucky feat but better mm -hmm. it's it's just too much like they need to strip something out of this otherwise Anyone like if you want to play a bard or a cleric or a a fighter of any type that is built on assistance, like a battlemaster fighter or a paladin, like the hobgoblin is an, a no-brainer. Cause imagine you've got a paladin, you know, hobgoblin or the Feywild Paladin. They're going to like kick off a smite, like one of their spell smites make an attack, they're going to be able to add five to it if they miss, or if they miss by too much, they don't have to burn the ability. They're running an aura that's buffing all their allies, and then after running up and making their attack, which will probably hit, they can use their bonus action to grant an ally advantage to hit whatever the target is, plus whatever bonus they want to choose. Yeah. like The fact that they're giving all of these abilities as racial bonuses without tying them to a class allows so much synergy way too easily. Like, yeah. usually to get combinations like that, you have to think about multi-classing. In this case, you're just getting it all for free. I find it interesting just how different the Hobgoblins of the Feywild are from the Hobgoblins in Volos. Yeah, because we already have hobgoblins as a race. This is a different type of hobgoblin. Yeah, and I mean, like, they're not the same at all, I don't think. Yeah, I just, I mean, I haven't written my dissertation to them in the survey yet, but this, <laughs> like... It's going in there. Yeah, if, well, I mean, if this version of hobgoblins makes it to official print, it is going to be insta-banned by so many DMs. Yeah, I can also see on that note that if this does make it to official print, this will also be banned in Adventurers League, because not only that, but because they have an additional two flying races, and the Arakoka are usually insta-banned at Adventurers League events anyway. Well, also, I wanted to ask about that, because aren't the Arakoka limited to fly not being able to fly until level three or something? No, they have a flying speed of 50 feet from the get-go, and the fairy and the owl only do have a flying speed of 30 feet. So the Arakokra, you know, if you take the dash action, they can get 100 feet of flight in a turn, whereas at least these guys can only get 60, which is a little better. Right, so the Hobgoblin one is the only one that seems immediately to raise the question of WTF mate, as you would say. <laughs> um... The, I have to agree, and I'll, I'll give credit to Bucket because he was the first one that brought this up. The Owl Folk I don't have a problem with as a concept or mechanically, but the way they're described here seems weird because every other version of anthropomorphic owls that I have heard of or seen in fantasy haven't had the extra set of limbs like they have their legs and they have their wings and the wings are usually somehow able to function as arms if necessary or they just make do without a 
humanoid owl is is really I'm having trouble making it work in my brain I guess is is the way I'm gonna say that um, sure. I completely agree with you on that I'm I read that four or five times and I'm still picturing them without arms so I do like the way they've implemented it though with the nods to the realistic aspect of owls being very silent hunters yes. particularly in yeah. the Mm-hmm. And the fact that they can catch themselves if they're falling. Like, I think a a ranger or a rogue owl folk would be a lot of fun to play as a sneaky aerial assassin or, mm-hmm. um, or spy or something like that. I'm already dreaming up a rabbit folk monk. Yeah. With the additional hop? Yep. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> they also get to add their proficiency bonus to the initiative rolls, and mm-hmm. monks are generally pretty high up on the initiative order anyway. Uh, they get a reaction when they fail a dexterity saving throw, and they can add a d4 to the result, uh, which will help out so much for trying to do things um, that like monks are based around anyway. And then the additional movement of a d12, and you can get that many feet extra. The only thing that I can see a problem with that on the d12 is if you're playing on a grid, what does that translate as? Is that one square, two square, or three squares? And where would the cutoff be? Because I can see that it would be like, if it was zero to five, then you get to move on to the next square. If it's five to ten, but then if it's like ten to twelve, is that three square? Like, you see what I mean? So I think that might need a little bit of refinement, but... I mean, rules as written, you always round down. So the maximum you're ever going to get out of that is two squares, and you're only going to get that if you roll a 10, 11, or 12. Right. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, yeah, if you're doing gridded combat, that particular ability has limited utility, but I would imagine a lot of DMs will let somebody playing a rabbit folk tweak that somehow. Mm -hmm. And maybe, like you said, allow up to a three square little hop yeah which makes me wonder why they didn't do it based on a d20 roll because then it's that's a nicely round and maybe they didn't want them moving an additional four squares or something like that but well this is i mean this is my personal opinion but i think if they did that they would get a bunch of flack from people who aren't doing gridded combat and that an additional potential 20 feet would be too much yeah yeah okay I, I can I can see that. I do also want to say that I think if any players come up and say they want to play a rabbit folk bard, be do a personality screen and see what aspects of <laughs> rabbits they actually want to emphasize. Because I was wondering what you were going that. <laughs> I can see that going south really quickly. Oh yeah. Yep. 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 Let's yes double check your players for that um so just uh, returning to the flavor of the uas overall i was looking at these where they've got all these additional abilities and so the first thing when i read this is i thought that these seem to be a lot more full of racial abilities than any other race that we've really seen particularly like you were saying things like the hobgoblin where it's tied to the race and not the class normally you expect to see these abilities on the class do you think that this is because they're now using Tasha's rules as default, that they're using the racial traits to differentiate the races as much as possible, whereas before they would have used stats? I still see that as more of something that you would see in a class or subclass than something that you would see on a race, though. I do too, but that's what I'm saying, is is the assumption that I've made, because races are now no longer distinguishable by stats... Are they stuffing these abilities onto races to make the races distinct? Because otherwise, you know, what is the difference between uh, an owl folk and an aracocra if your stats can be assigned however you wish? Yeah, I can see that. I think they're they're a victim of their own policy here in that from the beginning of 5th edition, they apparently made the decision that races will no longer have negative attributes of any kind. Right. Um other than arguably some of the races are slower than others but even then they're only slower by five feet but nobody gets negative ability modifiers nobody gets 
prohibitions against using equipment or magic. Everything is a bonus. Now to your point, with Tasha's rules being in effect, they can no longer give any bonuses that are directly tied to ability scores. So, you know, they can't say, you know, one of the features of Mountain Dwarves was they get a plus two to two attributes rather than a plus two plus one. And, you know, I could see, um, for example, the probably the owl folk um, in the non-Tasha's system, they might have decided they get a plus one to wisdom, dexterity, and charisma, maybe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they could... One of the racial bonuses could have been instead of a plus two plus one, you get three plus ones spread out. Um, so, yeah, I could see that the reason that we're starting to get more and more distinctive racial bonuses or racial abilities is because they're running out of ways to differentiate between the different races. So I think they have sort of painted themselves into a corner, in a sense, by simplifying the races as much as they have. Because otherwise it's just what you look like and not actually what your character can do. Right. Although I think based on some comments and some discussions I've seen online, a lot of people are sort of leaning that way anyway. Yeah. I want to play rabbit folk so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so the fairy race is the only one that is restricted to size small. So you can be a small yeah. owl folk or a small rabbit folk, but the fairy race is the only one that's actually small. Yeah. There are different game mechanics for small size creatures. Right. Things don't work the same way. If you want to play a fairy, then you will have to familiarize yourself with those differences. Right. And what I thought was quite interesting is that they are small but they also give you a trait that lets you squeeze through a one-inch gap, and that is something that is specific to tiny creatures. So I'm actually thinking if they were trying to give us a creature that isn't labelled tiny, because, like you said, with small, that has mechanical ramifications, but to give us a, a tiny creature without giving us a tiny creature. Well, also because I think, again, going back small does have some different rules to it, but most of them are not extreme differences mm -hmm. from medium. Once you get to tiny, the differences get more complex and some of them are actually detrimental. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I mean, is that they've given us a tiny race without giving us a capital T tiny, tiny race. Race, yeah. yeah. Which, personally, I find that I'm a little annoyed by it, but I can't really give a legitimate reason why, other than it's like, why are you trying so hard to fake it? <laughs> right, yeah. Just give us a tiny race and let people take the disadvantages if that's what they want to do. Yeah. It's like, in the same way, I wish that they would have made um, the... Because we don't have any large races either. So, like, centaurs are not large, they're medium. Uh, right, so I remember that being a big point of controversy when the centaurs in the... Minotaurs first right. came out as playable races, mm -hmm. and everybody was like, oh, they're medium, but every creature stat block for them since the beginning of time has made them large, so what are you doing? Yeah, but again, it's because large has a mechanical implication. Right. So, again, I get it. It's annoying, but I get it. One thing that I was curious about with these, though, is every creature type here is single-typed. So fairies are fey, owl folk are humanoid, but we saw from the gothic lineages that people like the hag were fey humanoid. They had dual typing. Do you think that we will likely see when it gets published that these will have dual typing as well and that they're just keeping it simple for this UA? Or do you think that this is just a... that they've dropped dual typing? Uh, I'm gonna go with neither. Okay. I think the dual typing from the gothic UA was meant to emphasize that those races were evolutions of an existing okay. creature. Mm -hmm. Like, nobody is born a Dampir, and nobody is born as a hag. Whereas you are born or created, depending on which 
mythological method of creation you ascribe to as a fairy or a hobgoblin. So I think the dual typing in the other UA was meant to emphasize that. Mm-hmm. Now, if they if they run, no pun intended ever, but if they <laughs> run down the rabbit hole on making more fey races, depending again on which parts of the mythology they lean into, I could see some fey wild creatures ending up as dual types. For example, if they do fey changelings, which are mythologically different from Eberron changelings. They're not like shapeshifters. They're fey creatures left in place of abducted children. I could see them having dual typing because they're, you know, serving as a human, but they're a fey creature. So they could end up with humanoid fey dual type. And if they do dryads as a playable race, those could be fey and plant type creatures. I just think for these particular races, it doesn't apply. But I can see Feywild creatures where it would be applicable. So, and, and this is just my own cognitive dissonance in what you are saying. If they are folk of the Feywild, why would their type not include Fey? Yes. Honestly, because probably it's... um. Again, mechanical. As soon as you label something as fey, it means that, for example, it is immune to the charmed condition or it has resistance to the charm condition. So, for example, the fairy race, which is fey, yeah. it doesn't specify in their racial features that they have uh, saving throws against the charmed condition. Whereas hobgoblins, which are of type humanoid, specifically have in their racial things the fey ancestry that specifically says they have it whereas the fairy is just like innate so as soon as you attach fey humanoid to hobgoblins that racial trait becomes irrelevant but it means that mechanically you know you're adding all these additional terms and conditions onto the the races so for example a fairy can't be targeted by hold person because they're not a humanoid yeah if, if hobgoblins had the fey type then I mean, just just call it. They're <laughs> <laughs> it would be the best race in D and D. Owlkin, I think actually, if we're going to go with that, I think Owlkin would be the best race in D and D if they were Fey and Owly, because Owlkin, I think, has the most racial traits out of any race that I've seen. Yeah, proficiency to self, uh, basically a free feather for uh, detect magic, flight, and you know, in addition to that, if they had. Uh, resistance to charm and couldn't be targeted by things like hold but but I uh, know they could because of the humanoid trait. Also right. dual typing means that you've got to do a lot more thinking as a DM. I'm not arguing that it should be dual typed. I'm just arguing that if they're from the Feywild, they should have a type of Fey in my brain. Yeah, I think it's partially due to, like in the with the hobgoblins they sort of explicitly gave a reason. Oh, yeah. they were originally from it and then they left. But mm. I think it it has to do with like the f there are a lot of creatures that reside in the Feywild that didn't necessarily originate there. But that's more of a guessing justification than an actual explanation. Okay, see so that I can see though. Yeah. Well, look forward to a manual of the planes full of spelljammer coming this way soon. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to check out some actual Forgotten Realms with a look at al -Kadim. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Oh, there you are, Ostron. I need some teleportation. Um, that's not a spell you can use as a warlock. I mean, you've got Thunderstep, but that's no, 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 not no, 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 no. I, I need you to teleport me somewhere, uh, Alcadim specifically. I'm probably going to regret this, but why? Well, I'm trying to explore this whole alternative patron idea, and I know that genies are an option, and I hear there's a lot of genies in Alcadim. Um, yeah, I might need some help with this. Book. <coughs> okay. Wow, that's that's a dusty one. Thanks, Libby. Ah, yeah, I see your problem here. There isn't a place called Al-Kadim. Uh, pretty sure there is. I know I've heard about it. 
Yeah, that's that's sort of the problem. You've only heard about it and you don't know the details. To be fair, most people don't know anything about it anymore, except that it might have existed at one point. Alkadim is one of the campaign settings for D&D that are part of what people online like to joke are the actual Forgotten Realms. However, Alkadim is literally like the Forgotten Realms in the sense that it isn't actually the name of anywhere. You can't look at the Sword Coast and find a location marked Forgotten Realms. Similarly, you can't look at a map of Toril, the planet where the Forgotten Realms are, go down to the far southeast of Faerun and find a location marked Alkadim. What you can find are places called the High Desert, the Haunted Lands, the Great Sea, and Hazuz, all contained within a political region known as Zakara. Zakara was the name of the region where the Alkadim content took place. It was mostly put together by Jeff Grubb, a TSR veteran who contributed to the D&D settings guides for the Forgotten Realms, Spelljammer, and Dragonlance. Alkadim, or at least the initial books in the setting, were put together by him and another TSR designer named Andrea Heyday. Now we're going to immediately address the camel in the room, and that kind of joke is what we're talking about. The first book in the setting, literally called Arabian Adventures, opens in part with the following description, which we're paraphrasing. Three distinct visions of Arabia have helped give shape to these rules. The first is the historical Arabian Empire, the home of great warriors, explorers, and traders, as well as great knowledge and civilization. The second Arabe, more important to these rules, is that of legend, the world of genies and ghouls, mad barbers and magicians, and young women gifted with true sight. The third Arabe comes from our own culture and its Hollywood movies, films that are occasionally humorous and quite often inaccurate. Keep in mind the, quote, humorous and inaccurate movies that I mentioned are ones that were created in the late 70s and the 80s, so that should give you a sense of the political and social mores that we're dealing with here. We're going to present information about this setting as it was published originally. We're not going to give an opinion one way or the other about the sensitivity or the intent behind what was published, other than to say it will probably become clear very quickly why this was only ever published for second edition. So, to start with, Sakaran society is broadly broken into two separate groups. The Albadia, described as nomadic desert tribes, and the Al-Hadar, who are those who like to dwell in the cities. Like with Eberron, traditional interpretations of many D&D races were turned a little bit on their heads. The Al-Hadar group in particular, all sapient humanoid races were considered civilized, helpful members of society, including races such as orcs and goblins. However, they were very much outnumbered by humans and even more so in the tribes of Albadia. However, unlike Eberron, they didn't often go into describing these subcultures of each. It was just assumed that any player race could be living as a contributing member of the society. Religion was mostly different as well. The major official religion of the area was called the Enlightenment and was focused on the worship of eight great gods, each embodying a particular virtue, as well as several smaller or local gods focused on specific areas. Unlike the Forgotten Realms deities, most of the Enlightenment gods only focused on one thing. You didn't have a god or goddess of nature, home, and fertility. Each one of those had a different god in charge. The other major religious focus of the area was fate. The idea of fate being the prime influence of all things in the world was central to most Zakaran's belief along with the gods. In Zakaran legend, all of the beliefs and laws of the land were handed down by a woman named the Lore-Giver, who embodied the essence of fate specifically to convey the laws to the people of Zakara. That belief gave rise to one of the names for Zakara, the Land of Fate. The center of Zakaran society and religion was the city of Hazuz, where the Grand Caliph ruled, who is different from the Great Caliph, who's the head of the genies. Do not get those two mixed up. Hazuz was also the home to the Golden Mosque, a site all adherents to the Enlightenment were expected to make a pilgrimage to at least once in their lives. And if some of you familiar with Islam are starting to raise your hands and go, hang on a minute, at this point, remember what we said at the beginning. Apart from the belief in fate, there are a few other tenets laid out as central to Zakaran society. First, there is the concept of honor, which is portrayed as a kind of immediate social contract. If a family or individual's honor is besmirched, the offended party can and will demand immediate restitution, either by money or by physical punishment. An example in the book outlines, yes, a thief having part of their hand cut off. Only two offenses immediately warrant death, murder and what they call amorous impropriety. 
The example given in the book tells the story of a woman betrothed to a merchant who instead fell in love with a farmer and ran off with him. To settle the resulting issues of honor, the woman's brother tracked down his sister and stabbed her in the heart. Then the merchant, looking to settle things with the farmer, arrived to find that the farmer's family had already killed the young man for him to restore their family's honor. All of this was considered right and proper behavior, and honor was satisfied. As you might have gathered from that last part, purity is another big deal to Zakaran society, and because various parts of the female body, regardless of species, can be tempting, city-dwelling women are typically shrouded in full covering garments and are often locked away from the public eye for everyone's good. The nomadic Albadia are more egalitarian. The women help with all major tasks, including combat and wear clothes more like the men, mostly for practical reasons. The tribes can't afford to have any individual not work. That sort of division in behaviour is a common example of the philosophical divide present between the Albadia and the Al-Hadar. Members of each group believe they are superior to the other. Al-Hadar think they are more pious because they worship in grand temples, while Albadia think they are closer to the gods because of being out in nature and depriving themselves. Albadia think the city dwellers are soft and lazy, while the Al-Hadar think the nomads are crazy to live in the desert. However, all of them believe they, and their culture as a whole, is superior to any that outsiders represent. That said, hospitality is also another major tenant of Zakaran honour, and they do their best to make any outsider welcome until the point where their honour is offended. Outside of civilization, the land of Zakara has a few very specific groups of troublemakers. There are the usual bandit types, tribes and groups that renounced enlightenment and serve what are called savage gods, or those that did not contribute to enlightenment. Some also worship what are called cold gods of the elements, one each for air, earth, fire, and water. As experts in D&D theology might already have guessed, these are actually primordials from the elemental planes. While most second edition player races were described as integrated into Zakaran society, that wasn't true of all sapient species. Giants were the local ancient enemy and had a vast empire in the region thousands of years before the humans and smaller races took over. Some of them are still around and yearn for the glory days. The Yuan-Ti also regularly showed up to cause trouble. One of the major antagonists of the region were the mountain-dwelling Yakaria, or Yak Folk. Ogre-sized humanoids with yak-like heads who had their own society based on slavery and worship of a brutal deity called the Forgotten God, a power that demanded sapient sacrifices to the Four Elements in exchange for giving the Yakari the ability to regularly enslave Dao. Speaking of Dao, at this point some of you are probably wondering, if this is based on Arabian stories and legends, where are the genies? Apart from the ones enslaved by the Yakmen, genies were definitely a central feature in Al-Qadim. The Zakaran belief around them set them up as sort of angels with more independent thought. They're credited with being the major reason the Empire of the Giants originally fell, and some hold the belief that they are created and dispatched by the gods of enlightenment to punish unbelievers. The fall of several local and more recent empires are credited to vengeful genies. However, they are just as often described as rogue agents with mischievous and unpredictable motives and behavior. Mechanically speaking, Al-Qadim as a setting didn't add much to D&D at the time other than as a setting. The only real unique facet of the campaign setting is the enforcement of kits. In 2nd edition, kits are kind of more or less like we have subclasses today. Enhancements to the flavour and abilities of a class beyond just the basics. In 2nd edition, those were usually optional, but Al-Qadim's setting not only provided a number of them, but mandated their use for characters in the setting. The stated reason is that the character's interaction with the honor system and the laws of Zakara would be drastically different depending on the kit chosen, which would also inform their cast in Zakaran society. As we've already said, Al-Qadim only got a major release for D&D's second edition. There were multiple sourcebooks and adventure modules published at the time, with titles such as Secrets of the Lamp, Ruined Kingdoms, Golden Voyages, and Corsairs of the Great Sea. Dungeon and Dragon magazines also had a decent amount of supplemental material to go along with the setting. After 2nd edition though, Al-Qadim was really never seen again. Dragon magazine published some 3.5 prestige classes, again think complex subclass rules, that were based on some of the kits created for 2nd edition, but no sourcebooks or reference materials have come out before or since. Though if you've been paying attention, you can probably guess why Wizards of the Coast may have been hesitant to revisit the setting, particularly the details as portrayed in the original source. It remains to be seen if they will go through the effort to update the setting for modern audiences. 
In the meantime, if you want to go campaigning in the Land of Fate, you'll have to do most of the legwork yourself. So, let me just see if I get this right now. You got Libby to get you the book, passed out all of these notes, had us go through that entire description, essentially to just tell me the reason you can't teleport me to Al-Kadim is because it's actually called Zakara. I think that's a bit of an oversimplification. I mean, honestly, I'm starting to understand why the killer DM leaves you dead on the floor when she's finished with you. That's the warlock angst talking, I think. Oh no, I will show you the warlock angst. It has a 120 foot range and does force damage. Okay, okay, everyone cool it. Look, there's Ray Ray waving at us from the door. Let's all go over to the scrying pool and forget about angst and frustration and problematic locations for a while, huh? What news from the door? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, huh? Last time, we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what's your favorite book to come out of Candlekeep? And what do you think of the quality of the stories contained in the new tome? What do you think of Ostron's tinfoil hat theory? Are they trying to put in a link to Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, or is it just a basic template that Perkins wrote with no ulterior motive? Phoenix on Discord says, I think the stories are fine. They are what they are, one-shots with no through-thread, except they're in Candlekeep. I mean, why do we even need this book? You yourselves said that some of these adventures could take place in other libraries. I mean, come on, they're books. You don't need to go to a special library to find them. Are you going to try to read every book in the library hoping to create a campaign? No, you're going to use these adventures as one-shots. $49.99 one-shots. That is why I said that these would be better off as a DM's Guild release. You could pick and choose which adventures you fit into the game you're running. As for the extra stuff, Greenwood published the Candlekeep Compendium a year ago, and it's marvelous. It too has a map of the fortress, and a very good appendix with treasures and monsters. Wizards is putting out substandard stuff to fill gaps in releases. I hope this trend doesn't continue. And Panthulu, aka Shiv, on Discord says, I've read one adventure on Candlekeep Mysteries, and the amount of places to put books noted in is more than I tend to see in D&D. I'm not well read in D&D published modules, but so far there's a lot of places to put the books, either ones as one of the modules, or ones to take back into Candlekeep. The Sabi wrote in on Discord to say I have to agree with a lot of Phoenix's thoughts on Candlekeep. If you want one-shot adventures, there are less expensive ways to get them. The one-page dungeon contest or the DM's guild come to mind. And this appears to continue the trend of substandard releases just to meet a planned schedule, which is part of the reason I stopped buying the books. I have enough options and adventures with what I already purchased, and if I want something more, I look online for a well-known author that I can buy from directly or nearly directly through the DMs Guild or some other site. I Spectre on Discord says, I appreciate that once the gimmick of Candlekeep was decided for this collection of adventures, that they didn't dive too deeply into the lore, which would have basically invalidated the Candlekeep Compendium. The Compendium is a much more complete dive into the library itself. I'm glad that they let it still have its value. I think that they decided to include it in part as a potential link to Venrichton's Guide to Ravenloft, but Perkins stated in an interview that they included it because they needed a level 3 adventure. My theory is that one of the level 4 adventures was supposed to be level 3, but just didn't work as that, so they reached for something that did, and they get the added benefit of tying to the next book. Yeah, that's probably the actual explanation right there, isn't it? It's filler. Yeah, and one of the level 4s was supposed to be level 3, and then they looked at it and were like, hey... Level 3 characters will die, which normally we're okay with, but for some reason we're going to move it ahead and say we need this other thing in there. Clearly not the standard wizard's MO there, because otherwise they would have just published it, and it would have been fine. Yeah, um, so going back to what Phoenix and the Sabi are saying about collections of one-shots, yes, the one-page dungeon contest is a fantastic place to get one-shot dungeons. Uh, We've covered that as an adventurous pack. Highly recommend going there. It still has one of my favorite dungeons that I'll never get to use. Oh yeah? Which one's that? It's the one where the dungeon is actually a, like, three-dimensional cube of rooms connected by varying teleporting gates, Mm -hmm. and the location you end up with depends on which gate you select and which direction you move to go through it. So eventually Uh. you basically have to do a geometric calculation to figure out where you are and where you're going to go. And I knew if I ever tried to run this dungeon, (laughs) my players would come across the table at me with literal weapons. So I can see why it's one of your favorites because it featured the phrase geometrical calculations. I can see why you will never get to run it because it features the phrase geometrical calculations. (laughs) So I actually think that 
A lot of people dislike this book because they're not seeing the point of it. And the point of it was not Candlekeep. And I I want to back up just a little bit and say this is my opinion. My opinion is the point of it was not Candlekeep. The point of it was not to run a bunch of one-shots. The point of it was to highlight the differences in and the cultures of the people that play D&D right now. Yeah, I can see that as a meta collection. I feel like they should have done more to highlight that, though, if that was the intent. And I realize you said it's your opinion, so we have no official basis to argue that that is the case. They did make a big deal out of the stories being created by essentially outside contributors. Mm -hmm. Most of them weren't created in-house at Wizards. I feel like they would have gotten a better response if they highlighted that more, particularly in the context of, you know, writing or redefining some cultural assumptions or some portrayals of races in D&D. Right, um, but then just to be the sort of counterweight to that argument, you'll then have people who very much like I would imagine both Phoenix and Sabi would then look at that and say, oh, this is a bunch of one-shot adventures by a bunch of authors I don't particularly care about. I'm not going to buy it. And it would actually hurt sales. So I think they probably did the wizard's committally non-committal thing of let's gently highlight the authors, let's kind of say it's a first-party product, and never really commit to either of those as a full vehicle. Yeah, I feel like that's going to do as much damage to the sales too though i mean i have seen a lot of comments on twitter from people who really like all of the adventures and are picking up the book Mm. so as we said there's nothing particularly wrong with any of the individual adventures other than possibly perkins depending on how you (laughs) think about it and like I liked several of them I might use mm. one or two of them myself but yeah I just feel like as Ryu said the delivery of them was a little bit odd yeah I also feel that these compilation books are kind of suffering from the fact that Tales from the Yawning Portal was actually a really good book but I think that Wizards might have missed the essence in what made Tales from the Yawning Portal a good book. It wasn't that it was a compilation of one-shot adventures, it was that it was a greatest hits. And then Ghost yeah. of Saltmarsh came out, and that wasn't, you know, that was, it was okay, it was a bunch of one-shot adventures. And then Candlekeep Mysteries has come out, and it's a bunch of one-shot adventures. But it wasn't a greatest hits collection, which is what we got in Tales from the Yawning Portal, and that's why that book was really good. Then again, I mean, we have anecdotal evidence that it is selling well so mm. it, it might just be that we have a uh, a more negative sampling well again to flip the other way entirely now on my stance um, the fact that it's selling well doesn't necessarily indicate that people are really gung-ho about the content because loads of people could buy it to see what it's about and then not like it but by which point that's a sale particularly on platforms like D&D Beyond where you don't have to go to the effort of going to a bookstore to actually get it you can just you know put in your credit card info and pff, there you go yeah which we need to, you need to look at long term sales figures for something like right. that right so we'll have to wait and see i have to say though as much as you guys did not like the alternate cover for this one I think I actually might make a trip to my friendly local gaming store just to pick it up. And Sabi and Felix, we did get the second halves of your feedback, but you were a week early, so we're saving it, okay? Good? Good. All right. And that brings us to this week's community questions. Fey races from the Unearthed Arcana. Do you want to join Ryu's Legion of Rabbit Folk Monks? Are you looking to impersonate a tiny creature as a fairy? Do you want to jump into the debate around owl folk and arms? And also, what's your take on the abilities for the new races? Are they just a way to make the races cooler and more interesting, or are they some sort of feature creep to make up for the lack of ways to differentiate the races now that Tasha's rules are a thing? Details on how you can get in touch, coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 158th entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 159th entry on March 31st. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? 
Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can always comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at heroesrisednd. You can email us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you, so take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feeds at feed.heroesridepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcasts. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy. And be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from just $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into the recording booth for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and adventurers league correspondent, Indigo Spectre, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Branwyn, and Tomosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. have such squeaky chairs tonight (laughs) so if you like what you see here or conversely if you hate it be sure to fill in the survey available on the what are you doing to me here uh giving you sentences to read be sure to make you fill in oh no that's just a horrible typo (laughs) yeah okay be sure to be sure to fill in the survey i I think i was thank you make sure to to fill in the survey it was probably what you were trying to say. What probably happened is I started writing a sentence and then I got interrupted by somebody and then I tried to go back to it with a completely different sentence in my brain at that point. Anyway, copy fixed. Carry on. The material in the Sonic Arcana is presented for playtesting and to spark your imagination. These game mechanics are in draft form, usable in your campaign, but not refined by full game design and editing. They aren't officially part of the game, aren't permitted in D&D Adventures League events, and be sure to check with your DM before using these options at your tables. Okay, just before we carry on, one, round of applause, two, I never want you to complain about me doing a run-on sentence again, because you can do it, you have just proved it. (laughs) Ryu. (laughs) Give me a second. That made me laugh a little bit more than I expected it to. (laughs) Your creature type is Fae, and you're a small with a feed of of 30 speed. There we Uh, go. Also, you said you are a small. I did. You're right. Mm. And you're small with a feed. Dang it! With a, with feed, a feed of thirty speed. Thirty speed. That's going to be the show title, I think. <laughs> feed of thirty speed. Hospitality, where you and the target gain temporary hit points equal to one d six plus your. For those of you that, oh, why? Yes. Why? Why? <laughs> <sighs> because you are never going to say puns, so I have to write them into the script. <laughs> For those of you that couldn't give a hoot about fairies and hobgoblins, you have the owl folk. Feywild setting book, but stuffing it full of... Sorry, apparently my phone decided to go off. How dare it. The third airbay comes from our own culture and it's Holloway... Hollyway? (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) 
to just tell me the reason you can't teleport me to Al-Kadim is because it's actually called Zakara. It's actually also called Al-Kadir. Sorry. But haven't we been saying Al-Kadim the whole time? And did I say Al-Kadim in the intro? I did say Al-Kadim. Yes, it is Al-Kadim. Yeah. Sorry. No worries. I typed it wrong and you said it correctly. I did. So should I just go on? You should just carry on. And apologize to Branwyn. Sorry, Branwyn. I can I can see why it's your favorite because it features the word geo. Well, uh, I lost sorry, the, sorry. I lost the name of it. Geographic geometric okay. geometric. That was it. Sorry, it's it's late. <laughs> Hang on, let me jump back into that. And anywhere else, good pot. Good cod pasts. It's back. It's back. It's the classic. Sorry.